Thank you again, Sharon. What a great uh, song that is. I don't know who wrote that song, but they get it. I mean, that is just a hard song not to cry when you hear it, right? Because it just, it just hits us wherever we're at. I don't care where you've been, what you're going through, where you think you're headed, right? Um, that, you know, a lot of songs that are written today are just really kind of cheesy and, and um, simplistic and trite and, you know, you can tap your foot to and stuff, but none really grip you like that, you know, and it's just really why, because it grapples with some of the deepest truths in the scriptures about God's sovereignty, his providence, um, the fact that this is not our home and there's always something missing in our hearts, right? There's these disappointments, there's these hard things when we come to realize that all those things are all part of God's plan for us, right? To remind us that, hey, this is not our home. Don't get comfortable here. There's something better out there for us. And um, that uh, our trials are his mercies in disguise. What a great line. So good truth to be thinking about. Well, you ready for your test? You didn't know there was a test, right? You're like, oh, no, you should tell us so we can study and get it, you know, prepared. Well, take your Bibles, okay? Y'all got your Bibles? And I want you to turn to what many consider to be the most confusing and most controversial book in the entire Bible. Don't look at your neighbor and see what they're doing and where they're turning. This is all about you right now. It's your little test. Okay, you go ahead and take your Bible. Start moving. Come on, don't just look at me. Get, get your Bible or start going and find that book that is the most confusing, most controversial book in the entire Bible. All right, let me give you a hint. It's not in the New Testament, okay? So that's half. I just cut your job in half, okay? Now you got a 50-50 chance. Now you're, you're in the Old Testament now looking for the most confusing, most controversial book in the Bible. You got it? Okay, where are you turn to? Ecclesiastes. Uh, you're like, they're all confusing. That's why we come to church. So you can explain them to us. The, the right answer is Song of Solomon. So if you've not uh, turned there yet, please take your Bibles and turn to the Song of Solomon. And some of you guys are already getting nervous um, because this is, in many ways, a very controversial book and a very confusing book. And uh, I think I mentioned, um, uh, maybe I didn't mention it here, but I did it on Wednesday night, that uh, we just finished up our series on Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night. And uh, I've been thinking and praying about what to do next on Wednesday nights, and this is the challenge uh, of my week, is to juggle these two series that I always try to have a Sunday morning series uh, in some book, uh, and a Wednesday night series in some book, usually Sunday morning is New Testament, Wednesday night is Old Testament, and so I'm um, just, these are always bouncing around in my head, back and forth, and so... Uh, I love that we're going through the Gospel of John on Sunday. You, you forgot we were going through that, right? Because it's been a while. But we're going to get back to that, I promise, all right? Next section is Lazarus' resurrection, okay? So I'm kind of like gearing up for that. It's like I feel like that's epic, and so I got to get pumped about that, you know? Um, but that's what we'll hit next when we get back to the Gospel of John. So what about Wednesday nights? We've had a great time in Ecclesiastes, and, and I've just kind of become intrigued with this guy Solomon, and... Uh, and just what a, what, a, what a weird and wacky life this guy lived, you know, the wisest man who ever lived and did some of the dumbest things anybody's ever done. And, and what, about, what about Solomon? And, and how, what is this, uh, these books that have been written by him, in the, in, and they're called wisdom literature. And, and so as, as I was finishing up Ecclesiastes, I looked across the page, and there it was staring me in the face, the Song of Solomon, dun, dun, dun. And I thought, hmm, I've already got all these commentaries that pretty much have Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon in the same volume. Um, so I've been kind of thinking about it, really, for the last, all the time I've picked up a commentary for Ecclesiastes and I saw a Song of Solomon on the spine. I thought, man, that would be a good book to study because um, I have no clue what I'm going to say. So that's always good. It uh, gives me some incentive to dive into it and figure it out, right? So anyway, we are going to begin a study of the book of Song of Solomon on Wednesday nights tonight, this morning. Sorry, this morning. We're going to start it this morning uh, because, as you know, whenever I get pumped about a book and I invest a lot of time and effort into studying it and trying to get my mind around it and kind of launch it and present it, I try to do it in a way that would be memorable, creative, and, and that 
really unforgettable, like, okay, we're, we got our minds around the entire book, that first message, and then we just kind of walk through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, uh, and so, again, I wanted to do that this morning, and I'm always regretful, right? If I didn't preach it this Sunday, I'd probably be preaching it next Sunday because I get all excited on Wednesday, and I think, oh, man, the whole church needs to hear this. Not because it's like my stuff, it's because it's God's stuff. And this is like amazing stuff, especially in the Old Testament, which we don't often get around to. Um, it's just like, wow, that's like such a cool book. And uh, why haven't I ever studied that before and preached that before? And so uh, I'd like to begin this morning by just introducing this book to you corporately, and hopefully it will um, stimulate you this morning to want to come on Wednesday nights. You think, well, I'm going to come for that. Uh, if I'm, we're going to be on Psalm, 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 Psalm I'll, make, I'll make that a priority. I want to be here on Wednesday nights. Um, or maybe if you can't come on Wednesday nights, at least you'll go online and you'll try to follow along with us uh, as we post the sermon, just so you can uh, be a part of what God is teaching us as a church as we go through another book in His Word. And so um, if you've got your Bibles open, Song of Solomon, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Stop. Okay? That's what we want to look at this morning. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this fascinating book in your word. And uh, we know that you authored it by your spirit through the pen of Solomon. And so we come acknowledging your uh, authority over this book, and we ask that you would give us wisdom uh, and insight, Lord, as uh, we seek to interpret it rightly, understand it accurately, apply it appropriately. And Lord, I just uh, get an, an, have an added sense of need this morning, desperation, as this is a tricky text, it's a touchy subject, and I just ask that you would um, guard my mouth and my mind, and that I would do a good job explaining this um, book in a, in a tactful way, uh, in, in really in a, even a veiled way, uh, even as the book uh, leads us to, and uh, even models for us how it's very um, graphic in its content, but very discreet in how it talks about it. And so I pray that I would do the same as we discussed it this morning, and that we would walk away this, this morning changed because of being exposed to another p- part of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most wonderful and gracious gifts that God ever gave to us as his creatures is the love between a man and a woman and all the incredibly enjoyable things that go along with that. The romantic attraction, the holy matrimony, the, the wedding ceremony, the physical intimacy, the lifelong companionship. And we know it all started back in the garden. Because in the beginning, God created a a male and a female to live together in the Garden of Eden in an intimate, loving, one-flesh relationship, and the Bible says they were both naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve, as we know, were the first husband and wife, and God not only commanded them to have sexual relationships, he, he, he said, be fruitful and multiply, only one way to do that. But he also expected them to enjoy getting to know each other. And if you know that's a euphemism uh, for physical intimacy when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. And so God wanted them to enjoy getting to know each other uh, and express their love for one another in the most tangible, pleasurable way imaginable. And I've said this before, uh, that sex is God's wedding present that every married couple gets to open on their honeymoon and that God intended for them to revel in and delight in for the rest of their lives together. Now, second only to our relationship with God, God intended our relationship with our spouse to be the greatest blessing we would ever experience in this life. In fact, Peter described marriage in 1 Peter 3, 7 as the grace of life. It just was a gracious gift from our God to to enjoy that relationship between a husband and wife. And so the love shared between a man and a woman, I would submit to you, is the strongest, most beautiful emotion a person can experience in this life. And at the same time, few things are stronger and more powerful and potentially destructive than the romantic feelings and the sensual desires that God designed to naturally accompany love. 
And that's why throughout his word, God regularly exhorted us to exercise self-control and warned us that, that he will punish us if we violate his sacred design for love, marriage, and sex. Probably the, the, the key verse that I would submit to you is Hebrews 13.4. It says this, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Are you familiar with that verse? Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I mean, that's the only verse that we had to go on when it came to navigating this whole uh, human love sexuality thing, that would be enough. Because it basically says this, that it's a sin to open up the special gift that God intended to be exclusively enjoyed in the context of marriage. It's a sin to open that before you get married or to use it outside your marriage. I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a culture that no longer honors marriage between a man and a woman and that has totally defiled God's design for the marriage bed or sex within the bonds of marriage. Same-sex marriages are not only being allowed in our country, they're being applauded. Sexual promiscuity is not only being practiced behind closed doors, it's, it's being uh, flaunted openly through every possible medium, TV and music and movies and newspapers and magazine and social media and the internet and on and on it goes. And you know as well as I do that our senses are just being relentlessly bombarded and our minds are being constantly inundated with these false, superficial images and ideas of human love and sexuality. And uh, we live in the day of just casual affairs, um, sexual encounters with anyone, anywhere, at any time, with no commitment whatsoever. And rather than pursuing one devoted, lifelong partner to share a till-death-do-us-part relationship, most people are opting for multiple friends with benefits, where they can come and go as they please. I think just one contemporary example will suffice to prove my point, kind of where we're at as a culture, and if you follow the news, I'm sure you've gotten wind of a, a book that has been selling like crazy called Fifty Shades of Grey. And it's been all over the news, front page, this, that. And uh, it's a trilogy. There's three books apparently in this, in this uh, uh, series. It's a, they're romance novels written by a, a British woman. And yet they contain explicitly erotic scenes in which the two main characters engage in all sorts of deviant sexual acts. And uh, the, what's so shocking about that, I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, that, we, we see that all the time in our society. What's the big deal? Well, what's shocking about that is it's topped the bestseller list around the world, and it's sold over 90 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 52 languages. And this is the thing that got me. It set the record as the fastest-selling paperback of all time. That just kind of gives you an indication where we're at as a culture. What, what we're hungry for, what we want to read, where our desires are, right? And to this unseemly story, you could add the, the multitude of seemingly innocent love songs and, and love stories to which there seems to be no end in our culture. And you, you think that based on how, how much we humans talk about love, you think we might know something about it. But we don't. I mean, few secular stories or secular songs written about love come close to, to expressing or illustrating the kind of love that God wanted us to experience in a monogamous marriage that lasts a lifetime. Most secular love stories and love songs, I think, only serve to further distort the beauty of marriage and to degrade the intimacy of marriage and to really destroy the permanency of marriage. Well, the good news is God knew that if left to ourselves, we was going to mess up his gift of human love and sexuality. And so along with the gift, he wisely provided us with a book that he himself wrote to help us avoid the world's thinking and the world's acting in regards to this vital area. And so since God created us with a natural attraction for the opposite sex, if you feel that attraction to the opposite sex, that's, by the way, that's a good thing, right? It's a natural desire. 
Okay, that's the way God made us. That's the way he created us. And God ordained marriage as the means by which we could express and experience that genuine, intimate love in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to him. So because of this, it makes total sense that God would devote an entire book of the Bible to address these these extremely significant and sacred matters. One of my favorite resources that I always uh, look at when I uh, begin a study like this is a book called Talk Through the Bible. If you haven't got that in your library, you should get a copy. It's an inexpensive book, but it just covers, uh, just gives you an overview of every, every book of the Bible, very helpful. And this is what the authors say about the Song of Solomon. They said, sexuality is part of God's creation with its related desires and pleasures, and it is reasonable that he would provide us with a guide to a pure sexual relationship between a husband and wife. The song is a bold and positive endorsement by God of marital love and all its physical and emotional beauty. Let me say that again. The song, the song of songs, is a bold and positive endorsement by God of marital love and all of its physical and emotional beauty. I'm sure you've all heard of a guy named Tommy Nelson. He pastors Denton Bible Church up in north of Dallas, and um, his series on the Song of Solomon kind of put him on the map. That's pretty much what he's known for today. How many of you guys have ever been through his series, either on video or in person, okay? It's a, it's a really helpful series. He's put it in a little book called The Book of Romance, and this is what he says. He says, do you really think God would give his beloved creatures, men and women, the wonderful feeling we call romance, an institution as mysterious as marriage, and the marvelous passion we know in sexual intimacy, and then not have anything to say about these gifts to us? No, indeed not. He has provided us an instruction manual so that we might truly live with the joy and intensity of satisfaction that he created us to experience. I remember hearing him for the first time talk through the Song of Solomon, and he talked about uh, it would be like God pulling a plug, pulling the pin on a grenade, and, and throwing it to a newlywed couple and saying, expecting them to figure it out themselves. And, uh, and, and so, no, God wanted to provide an instruction manual. So these eight powerful, practical chapters of Hebrew poetry, we know, we know as Song of Solomon, kind of tucked away here in the middle of the Old Testament are a celebration of the genuine, pure, exclusive, enduring love and passion enjoyed by a man and woman who are united together in holy matrimony. And so the Song of Solomon was given to us by God to help us both navigate and celebrate the most important relationship we'll ever have on earth. If you're married and you're here this morning, and you're sitting next to that, your spouse, guess what? That is the most important relationship, apart from his relationship with you, your relationship with God, that is the most important relationship you'll ever experience in your life. And so God wants to help you navigate that, because it does take some navigating. Do I hear an amen, right? That husband-wife relationship, it requires some navigation, but it also is worthy of celebration, and that's what this book is all about. It's, a, it's really a celebration. That's what I've chosen to title this series is, is a celebration of true love as opposed to the false, superficial love that's being sold out in the world. What they're telling us is, is, is true love is not true love. What this is telling us is true love. And so this is a tremendous gift to us from God. In fact, it was interesting to hear or to read what some of the Jewish rabbis said about the Song of Solomon. Obviously, they love the Old Testament, right? And in fact, the Song of Solomon is sung um, uh, on the last day of the Passover uh, every year. It's, their most, it's the most important Jewish celebration, annual celebration. And of all the books that they could choose to read or sing from, they choose the Song of Solomon. One ancient rabbi said this, This book is a gift of inestimable value, and the holiest of all sacred writings. Another rabbi said it this way, in all the world there is nothing to equal the day on which the song of songs was given to Israel, for all the scriptures are holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. 
And so of all the books in the Bible, when we get to the Song of Solomon, we, get, we come to the Holy of Holies. It's almost like you go behind the veil, right? We know the Holy of Holies uh, in the temple was that secret place where no one was allowed to go. Well, here is the Holy of Holies of Scripture, according to the Jewish rabbi. Well, I, what I thought was interesting was those statements were, were made in order to defend why the Song of Solomon should remain a part of the canon of Scripture, Because over the centuries, Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, um, church leaders, Bible scholars have questioned whether or not the Song of Solomon should even be in the Bible. You say, well, what's the big concern? Well, for one, there's no references to God. Possibly, in modern translations, they find one in chapter 8, verse 6, where it talks about uh, the very flame of the Lord. Some of your translations might even not even have that. So essentially, there, there's, there's never any mention of God specifically, but He's everywhere, assumed. Um, secondly, it never quotes any other parts of Scripture. And maybe more importantly, it's never quoted anywhere in the rest of Scripture. No, nobody else draws from it and uses it in, in, in their writings. But I think the main thing about this book that has caused so much suspicion regarding its canonicity is its erotic content. Because you you get to reading this thing, and and at points it gets so graphic, you might be tempted to take your Bible and go, is this the, did I pick up the right book? Is this the Holy Bible that I'm reading here? Where where did that, how, how did that get in here? In fact, the Jews wouldn't let their kids read this book until they got to a certain age. I read one place, they wouldn't let the, the, the men read it until they were the age of 30. That's a little prohibitive, I think, but it, it was the forbidden book. It reminds me of when I was an intern uh, years ago, and I was discipling a group of junior high kids, and we would get together on, on a weekly basis in one of the boys' attics, and uh, we'd sit around you know, for an hour or so and just have our Bibles open, and we'd talk about what we were learning from God's Word and where they were reading in their quiet time. And so I'd go around the room, what did you read this week, and what did you get out of it? What did you read this week? What did you get out of it? What did you read this week? What did you get out of it? And then I got to this one little guy, never forget him, man, cute little guy, and, uh, and, and little bashful, kind of little timid kid. And, and I said, so what did you read this week? He said, well, I read through the Song of Solomon. And I said, Really? And he said, yeah, but I didn't understand anything I read. He said, so I'm going to read it again this week and see if I can understand it. And I said, well, you know what? Let me encourage you to move on, okay? You probably don't want to be reading the Song of Solomon as a junior high boy, okay? And uh, so we got a chuckle out of that, but I never forgot that innocent kid just trying to figure it out, you know, and he didn't have a clue, and I'm glad, because I didn't want to try to explain that to him up in that attic with all the other boys, right? But um, even though... The Song of Solomon has endured years of criticism and, and has remained part of the canon to this day. Someone has put it well when they said that it suffered functional decanonization. In other words, while it's remained in the Bible, functionally, practically, it's been decanonized. It's like we took it out. Because even, if, even though it's there, we, we treat it like it's not there. We, we tend to ignore it or to avoid it and tiptoe around it. And somebody joked with me after first service, they said, you were tiptoeing around the Song of Solomon. I said, what do you want me to do? Go tromping around in it, stomping everywhere. And uh, it's all you can do in this thing is run from mine, landmine to landmine and not hopefully step on anything, right? And, uh, and, and so the, the point is we, 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 we avoid it. And, and as a result, um, I think this invaluable gift from God to help navigate and celebrate our love lives has left, been left unwrapped. It's unopened. It's this unopened gift. It's sitting over there, and it's just like nobody's opening it, and, and it goes unutilized, and marriages are the worst for it. Now, granted, I understand that, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's the most confusing and controversial book in the whole Bible. People are like, oh, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm just going to kind of forget it's there. Go from Ecclesiastes to what's next? Isaiah, yeah. And most scholars agree it, it is the most difficult book to interpret and to apply. Someone said it this way, that it's a tricky text with a touchy theme. It's difficult to interpret, so it's, it's tricky. Okay, what does this mean? But then it's also a touchy 
theme, so you've got to be careful how you, how you address that. Augustine likened the Song of Solomon to a puzzle. One other ancient rabbi said it was a, was a lock for which the, the key had been lost. You ever had one of those locks, right? You locked up something, and then it's like you lost the key. You're like, oh, great, the thing's stuck on there. What am I going to do? And you're like, oh, whatever. Or you go get big old things and go, right? But it was likened to that, man, this lock without a key. How am I going to get it open? I have no clue how to open this thing. And the interpretive challenges here are unparalleled, really, in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, I would say. No other book in the Bible has been given as many interpretations um, as the Song of Solomon. And that's why over the centuries, hundreds, literally hundreds of books and commentaries have been written trying to unravel and unlock and explain this book. And countless sermons have been preached on these 117 verses. In fact, I read somewhere uh, in the second century, a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 sermons on the first two chapters of the Song of Solomon. And then he died. He never finished it. Well... Uh, trust me, we're not doing 86 sermons, not even close, okay? I, I wouldn't even know where to begin to come up with data for 86, information for 86 sermons. Well, where you come up with that is you allegorize the text. And you make it say all sorts of things that you think it might mean or you want it to say. And, and you can go on for days um, talking about certain things. And, and uh, we're going to get to that whole allegor- uh, allegorical approach to this. Well, while it may have been preached in history, in church history, in our day, it's, it's rarely expounded um, in, in the church today. And I think those that, that uh, are teaching it, um, some are doing it in, a, in the most inappropriate way. Um, I don't have time to talk about that this morning. Come Wednesday night, and I feel like before I can teach through the Song of Solomon, I need to talk about how not to teach the Song of Solomon. And uh, there's, there's just some well-known uh, preachers out there, uh, kind of on, on the celebrity realm of Christianity, who are, who are kind of taking uh, the Song of Solomon and doing some things with it that uh, I think we'd all agree are very inappropriate. And so, when you think, uh, however, of, the, of just the miserable state of marriage today, not just, in the, not, not just out there, but in here in the church, I mean, marriage is not going so well for people. Have you noticed that? I mean, 50 people, 50% of the people get married get divorced. That's just not the statistic for the world. That's the statistic for the church. Sad. And as well as the, the, the alarming amount of sexual immorality in the, in the world and in the church, I don't think there's any book that needs to be clearly explained and practically applied more than this one. I appreciate what Tommy Nelson says. He said, the Song of Solomon is the book for this generation. This is the book we need. Another commentator said this, the Song of Solomon comes to us in this world of sin where lust and passion are on every hand, where fierce temptation assail us and try to turn us aside from the God-given standard of marriage. And it reminds us in particularly beautiful fashion how pure and noble true love is. It's called a, a wisdom book, right? Because it's foolish, right? It's foolish to believe that what we're seeing out there, the ideas, the images that are bombarding us every day, that that's somehow true love. That is not true love. That is fake. It's superficial. This is the, this is the real deal. This is what God intended for us. This is his standard for marriage. And so it, it really comes to help us to, to navigate this this. this sin-crazed world that is promoting a whole bunch of stuff that, that we need, to, if we're wise, we'll avoid. And so all of us, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, whether we're widowed, whether we're young, old, male, female, we need to be crystal clear on this, on this topic of what is true love. I mean, will somebody define for me what true love is, what it looks like? You're getting... You're getting um, that defined for you and described for you and illustrated for you every day of your life. 
for everything you hear on the radio, everything you watch on TV, all the movies you go to, the magazines you read, the, the billboards you see, we're getting a definition of true love out there, which is not true love. So we need to be clear on what true love is, what it looks like, what, what God, how God would define true love. That's the key. And so the Song of Solomon has a, has a message that everyone needs to hear, whether you're anticipating getting married, which hopefully that's everyone in here, if you're not, right? Everybody below that age and you're anticipating getting married, you want to get married someday. Or uh, maybe you're dating, you're courting, you're, you're getting close to being engaged, or maybe you're engaged in here uh, this morning. Uh, maybe you're already married. Maybe you're just newlyweds. You just got married. The honeymoon's not over. You're just having a great time. Or maybe you're uh, approaching the double-digit years and your anniversary. You've been married a long time. Well, wherever you're at in your love life, if you will, you're going to find this book to be a great guide to finding and enjoying true love and how to live with that true love in a way that honors and glorifies God. And so let's look at this. First verse here, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. And at the very beginning, we have to um, make some decisions that will really determine where we end up in our journey through the song of Solomon. And it's as if we come to this, this crossroad, if you will, and you have to decide which pathway you're going to go on as far as how you interpret uh, this, this book, and it will make, what, what we do with this simple phrase, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, will determine how we interpret the, the, the entire rest of the book. And so this is very important. And so here we have this Hebrew title, and again, you, you look at the historical context, it's always important when you, when you come to a book of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, that you make sure you understand it from its histor- or in its historical context. You need to know the historical background. And so that you interpret it accurately. And so here is this title given to this book, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And so really an accurate title for this book is is better than the Song of Solomon. It's really the Song of Songs is what it literally means in, in the Hebrew. And it says, which is Solomon's. So does that mean the Song of Songs, which was written by Solomon, was about Solomon, what do we think? I'd say yes to all that. It was written by Solomon, it's about Solomon, and we're going to see why that's the best interpretation. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 and 33 talk about how Solomon not only wrote a bunch of Proverbs, but he composed over a thousand songs. But this was the best one he ever wrote. This is the Song of Songs. This was his greatest hit, if you will. This was his magnum opus. It was in a category all by itself. None of his other songs even came close to this. We have an expression. We call it, we say things like the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings, right? To talk about that this is set apart. There's, there's things that are holy, but this is the Holy of Holies. There's kings, but he's the King of Kings. And here's the Song of Songs. And so we could say this is the greatest love song ever written, right here. And uh, I don't care what Justin Bieber comes up with, I don't care what Josh Groban comes up with, you name your favorite artist, no one will ever come close to writing a love song like this. And by the way, this was written back in probably the late 900 B.C. era, so this is a 3,000-year-old love song. And and nothing's topped it since. It stayed on the top of the charts, right? Nothing's ever knocked it off its throne as the greatest love song ever written. Now, Solomon, we know he was a great thinker, he was a great writer, a great composer. And we have to remember, though, he penned this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't Solomon just saying, oh, I think I'm going to write this thing about Song of Songs. I'm going to write this song. No, we know that this was not somebody sitting down in front of a piano and just kind of being inspired to write something. No, this was the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where, where, where God, by his Spirit, was directing Solomon to write down exactly what God wanted to be written here, word for word. And so here we have it. These are not just the words of Solomon. These are the words of God. 
Solomon refers to himself here seven times throughout uh, this song. He also speaks of himself as a king five times. And so these references to himself leave little doubt that he wrote this song and he wrote it about himself and his relationship with his darling, his sweetheart, his one true love. Now, the obvious argument against Solomon's authorship is what? What in the world? This is the last guy I want to hear anything from when it comes to one true love. I mean, the guy had a harem of 700 wives, 300 concubines. What does this guy know about God's design for a monogamous marriage and purity? I mean, here, here's the, the most notorious polygamist who ever lived on this planet. And so he, he seems to be the least qualified to praise and extol the virtues of monogamous marriage. And by the way, have you noticed that the polygamy thing is kind of coming out now? It's kind of becoming the fodder for reality shows, reality TV. And I know you're sitting there going, well, that's just weird. And you ladies are going, that's just wrong. It makes the hair on the back of your neck stand. That's a good thing, ladies, because that is wrong. It totally violates God's design for marriage. It's just not natural. And so here's this polygamist, Solomon, right? And uh, he's writing about monogamy. Well, how, what, are we, how, what are we supposed to do with that? We've got to get past that. Well, some have suggested that he wrote this before he plunged into polygamy and immorality, that this was his first wife, his, his, his one true love. Um, it may have been the relationship he described here in this song as the, the only one that he really experienced true love with. In other words, a lot of his marriages were political arrangements, but this one he married for love. Danny Aiken, who has done a great job in his commentary, I'm enjoying it already, he says this, this song describes a quality of relationship with one woman that seems inconceivable for a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Or in one who could not find one woman among a thousand. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes 7. He's like, I, I couldn't find one true love among a thousand. Aiken suggests it may be that the book presents the one true love of Solomon's life, perhaps his first wife, or it may be an ideal presentation of love to which Solomon aspired. He may have written it early in life as a young man soon after he was married and before committing the sin of polygamy or at the end of his life as he reflected on the ideal that God intended and yet he missed. Ecclesiastes was sort of that, right? Boy, I messed up. I went down a lot of wrong paths looking for satisfaction and happiness and, and, and I'm back to tell you, don't, don't, do, don't go there. Let me tell you what I concluded was fear God and keep his commandments. That's what life's all about. And, and I think, in a sense, this is where he's, he is with Song of Solomon, is, hey, listen, I, I, I've, I've, uh, I know the alternative. And, and this is God's best. This is what God intended for me and for all of us. And so this could be very well him saying, do as I say, not as I did. And when you think about it, who better to explain God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's mercy... Then David, who committed adultery, who committed murder, and yet went before the Lord and confessed that he was forgiven. I mean, I want to sit at that guy's feet and learn about what it's like to go before God and truly repent and, and experience God's forgiveness. And I've read Psalm 51 countless times, right? And, and learn from this adulterous, adulterer and murderer, David. Who better to reveal the mystery of the church than the one who persecuted the church? The Apostle Paul, I'll sit at that, feet, that guy's feet all day long and, and learn about the church, right? He was the one that persecuted the church. So who better to, to write about purity and lasting love than the one who was guilty of polygamy and immorality? I'll sit at Solomon's feet. I think we can learn from a guy like this, right? I mean, you know people in your life. You might be that person, Right? That, that have been down some bad roads and, and you're quick to let people know, hey, listen, trust me, you don't want to go there. And I found out the hard way, right, that this is the best way. And so we can learn. We don't have to, we, we can go to school on Solomon, if you will, and, and not have to go there, not make 
uh, you know, not learn the hard way like he did. We can learn the smart way. It's always better to learn the smart way than the hard way, right? And the smart way is looking at somebody else's life and saying, okay, I don't want to be that. I don't want that to happen. Or I want to be that, right? So the point is learn the smart way. I came across another perspective that I think is, is um, really helpful here. And, and um, I, think, I think it holds weight that this could be potentially part of the way we should view this book, the Song of Solomon. One commentator says this, that he's, he says that the Spirit of God intended this as a critique of the entire Solomonic era. His sinful lifestyle had led the rest of the nation into sin as a new foreign God was introduced with each new wife that he took, which led the nation further astray from the one true God into idolatry and immorality. And we know that that was the propensity of the nation of Israel, right? They were constantly uh, going after other gods and going after foreign women. And lest they perceive that Solomon's lifestyle was some way a stamp of approval for their sin, the Spirit of God said, no, Solomon, you're going to write this book, okay? And this is what it's going to, it's going to propose, something totally opposite of what you've modeled. And I think we, there's, there's, a, there's a part of us that, there's a wickedness in our hearts that I think sometimes we, we like it when, when somebody in leadership fails, when they mess up, right? Why? Because it lowers the standard and then we don't feel so bad. In fact, there's a movement, I think, in the world today, not even you know, from the, pre- the office of president uh, to many pulpits, that it's better to have a flawed, failed leader, right? Because he can relate better to us. And we don't feel you know, so intimidated by this person that's up on this pedestal and doesn't do anything wrong, right? And so let, it's better to have a guy who's, who's kind of blown it and so you know, he, can, he can relate to us. Well, God's saying, no, I don't, I don't want you guys to think Solomon's the standard here. You need to get back on track. And so this is what this commentator said. It's very good. He says, the Song of Songs was given to teach the sex-saturated population who had forgotten the way of the Lord, the way of wisdom, the meaning of faithfulness again, and to capture the hearts of frustrated men and women by, telling, uh, by the telling beauty and joy and freshness of human love that honored the law of the Lord. Do you get what he's saying? That, that that culture, that Jewish culture in Solomon's day was this sex-saturated uh, population that had forgotten the way of the Lord. They had forgotten the way of wisdom. And so he was going to exalt, God wanted to, the Spirit of God wanted to exalt the, the, the beauty uh, and the joy and the freshness of, of biblical love and, and so that, that, that it would capture the hearts of frustrated women, men and women. Talk about a direct parallel to our society. There's a whole lot of people, men and women, who are frustrated out there trying to figure out, trying to find true love, and they're coming up empty. There's people in this church who are, who are looking for true love, and, and they're looking for it in all the wrong places, and they're coming up empty, and you're frustrated this morning. And so God says, let me capture your heart and get you back on track and, and show you the kind of love that truly honors me. He goes on, he says, he wanted the fear of the Lord to rule their man-woman love relationships again, only in commitment to the Lord can sexuality be harnessed and glorified. That's good stuff. He wants the fear of him to rule our man and women love relationships, and only in commitment to him, to the Lord, can sexuality be harnessed and glorified. And so this is a very helpful resource. Is it not already? You're kind of seeing, hopefully, like, wow, I need this book in my life because I got a lot of everything else coming at me. I I need something to anchor me, right, to remind me, um, to kind of act as uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, as that that spike in the ground, right, that nail, that well-driven nail that's going to keep me from getting blown off course by all the, the winds of the world coming at me with all this false stuff about love. Well, we've been hinting at it, but now we come to the most difficult part of the Song of Solomon, and that's how to interpret it, how to interpret it. And again, I've mentioned this, this is the hardest book in the Bible to understand, to interpret, to, uh, and, and more, more interpretation have been suggested than any other book. And uh, in fact, 
I can't even begin to tell you the various options, okay? There's just so many variants of it could be this, slightly altered with this, and then possibly this, and you could add this to. And, and so let me just simplify and say there's basically two options when it comes to interpreting the Song of Solomon. And we've got to pick which option uh, we're going to go. Here we are at the crossroads again, and we're either going to take this path and, and, and understand the Song of Solomon this way, or we're going to take this path and understand the Song of Solomon this way. And so the first path we could choose is an allegorical path, the allegorical approach to Scripture. In other words, uh, this book is not an actual historical account of any real-life couple, for example, but merely an allegory. It's, a, it's an analogy written to teach some deeper hidden spiritual truth. And so Solomon was potentially describing the relationship between God and Israel. We know Hosea does that well, right? Um, Or he was describing in the future Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 talks about how really marriage is a great mystery and it's really to illustrate the relationship with Christ and the church. So we know that both Israel and the church are likened to a bride and that God and Christ are the groom. And so some feel very strongly that this, the primary purpose of this book was to illustrate God's love for us in Christ. That sounds biblical, sounds spiritual, sounds good, right? How could that be wrong? And I would simply say it's true that God did design marriage to depict and reflect his love for Israel and Christ's love for the church, but just because other books and passages in the Bible uh, teach this doesn't mean that we should interpret the Song of Solomon this way. In fact, I think you have to impose a lot of things from other books of the Bible to get that out of the Song of Solomon. Besides, Solomon mentioned real people in this book. He mentions himself. He mentions the Shulamite, the, the watchmen, the young virgins. And he mentions real places like En Gedi and Sharon and Lebanon. And so it's not like he was just making up this imaginary drama. He was, he was writing out a, a real-life story here. Well, at the same time, I would just say this, it's, it's, it's probably fair to say that the allegorical view, focusing on God and Israel and Christ and the church, has been the predominant interpretation of the Song of Solomon throughout church history. I mean, the majority of commentators have taken that perspective. They've allegorized the Song of Solomon. Men from Origen to Spurgeon, um, they've allegorized every jot and tittle of the song, every touch, every kiss, every fruit, every navel. I'm not talking about an orange, but, you know, the belly button. Every, every mention is likened to something about a relationship with God or the church. I mean, and it gets really wacky. I mean, I read one place where some guy was likening when Solomon was talking, describing his, 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 his lover's belly button, that that was a reference to baptism, the waters of baptism. I'm like, whoa, how did you figure that out? I mean, what are you smoking when you're doing some interior? I mean, seriously, how do you go from a belly button to water baptism? I don't, I don't know how that happens. But just to show you how silly that it can become when you're not careful um, to follow what we're going to find is the accurate interpretation, a literal, historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. And it's interesting because many of the interpreters that, that I referenced that I'm talking about here, I would otherwise hold in high esteem, particularly the Puritans. You guys know how much I love the Puritans, but, but they were famous for um, allegorizing the text of Song of Solomon. And unfortunately, I think they did more to confuse the Song of Solomon than to, to clarify it um, by treating it in a, in a pure, purely allegorical, allegorical fashion that, that skews the primary meaning of this book. And I think probably the driving issue behind all this allegorizing of the text is, is just the sensual nature of the book. And, and there's this underlying presupposition, apparently, that, that uh, you know, t- to be, you know, the human sexual love is an inappropriate subject for Scripture. Surely that's not what it could have meant. Whoa, surely that's not what that was meaning. 
As if spirituality and sexuality are mutually exclusive or incompatible. It's the story, you, you probably know this story. I love this story. The emperor's new clothes. Remember that story? And this vain emperor, and he wanted to always dress in the finest clothes. And so he got these guys that came, and they said, oh, we're going to bake you the be- most beautiful outfit you ever had. I think it was for his birthday. And so they did all this stuff, and they made a big charade. And, and they didn't do anything, and they let that guy go down the street naked. And he's walking down the street and everybody's going, oh, wow, what a beautiful outfit. And, and all the people in the kingdom were just patronizing the king until one little boy says, he's naked. And it just kind of shocked everybody. But you appreciate that kid's candor and his bluntness. And in the same way, you're reading through the Song of Solomon, you're going, these people are naked. They're unashamed, but they're naked. And so that leads us to, is there an alternative to allegorizing this, this text? And I would say, yeah, take it literally. Take it literally. Take it naturally. Take it, uh, we, we talk about the little historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. You just take it at face value. And if you just read it, uh, I mean, it clearly depicts a dialogue between two lovers, Solomon, my beloved, as he's referred to, and the Shulamite shepherdess, my darling. And it tells the story of this real-life romance involving Solomon and this young, uh, this young sweetheart of his, and it reveals the joys and the heartaches of, 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 of wedded love along with all the feelings and desires and the hopes and the fears experienced in human love. And again, when it comes to interpreting Scripture, you always have to go back to what's called the authorial intent. Have you heard that expression? The authorial intent, which basically means, what did the author mean? It doesn't matter what you think it means. It doesn't matter, right, what I think it means. What did the author mean? Because that's the meaning of the text, is what the author meant. Not what we make it to mean, it has one meaning. It's what what does the author mean? And what was he intending for that original audience? He wasn't thinking about Lakeside Bible Church and what they were going to think about it. He was thinking about what Israel was going to think about it, right? So what was on his mind when he sat down to pen this, this song? Was he thinking about God's love for Israel? Maybe. Was he thinking about Christ's love for the church? Probably not. Or was he thinking about his love for his sweetheart, his one true love? I think it's pretty obvious that that's what the authorial intent was, was he was just describing a relationship that he had with this girl who was to be his wife. There's a suggested storyline, I don't have time to read for you, but basically it goes like this, that Solomon was the king over Israel and he owned pretty much everything and so he had a vineyard up north, north of uh, Jerusalem and he went up there one time and one of the uh, people that were watching the flocks and taking care was this young girl who was out in the sun all day and she was kind of the Cinderella, if you will, uh, who was made to work out in the field and she was all sunburned and he, she was kind of shy and bashful when she met him and was concerned about how she looked and yet he, he adored her and began to woo her and uh, they fell in love and so he promised that he was going to come back and get her and he did and he brought her back to Jerusalem. She, be, he, she became his queen and uh, they had this wonderful wedding, and it, things were consummated on their wedding night, and, and, uh, and then they go into their married life, and they have some fights along the way, and get sideways with one another, and, and how they reconcile, and, and then she's missing, you know, her home, and so he takes her on vacation up there, you know, just to go back to the mountains of Lebanon, and, uh, and then uh, that's just kind of a little storyline that, uh, you know, might suggest kind of what actually happened. Again, it's suggestive, but... It's possible. And so all that to say, one commentator said it this way, one may use the song to illustrate the relationship between God and Israel or Christ and the church, but it must be observed that the text of the song gives no indication that it is intended as typology. The song is presented simply as an account of the relationship between the lover and his beloved nor is there any indication in the New Testament that the song has a Christological interpretation or application. In other words, it's usually helpful when a New Testament writer will quote from an Old Testament book and relate it to Christ, and you're like, oh, okay, boom, there's a connection. And it's helpful because they kind of tip you off and say, oh, okay, I missed that. Yeah, I can see the connection now. 
But it's a lot more difficult when they don't make any references in the New Testament about an Old Testament passage. You're kind of on your own. And, uh, and so when the old adage is, when the normal sense makes the best sense, apply no other sense. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to just say the, the normal sense makes the best sense, and so we're not going to apply any other sense. And so here we have, again, a, a, a poem. This is, this is part of the poetry section of the Old Testament. It's wisdom literature. It, its purpose is to teach us wisdom, to give us wisdom, to value the true, pure, monogamous love that God offers us, God provides for us in contrast to the world's alternatives, whether it's polygamy or immorality or adultery or pornography or you fill in the blank. This is, this is, the, this is the biblical alternative to that. That's foolish. This is wise. And so it just shows us all that God intended for us to enjoy in the context of marriage. In other words, if you want to go down that road, if you want to follow the ways of the world and, and, and think that you're going to find true love or that's true love, well, guess what? You're going to miss out on this. You're going to miss out on this. And this is way better. Because here we see the beauty, the intimacy, the permanency of, of true love. I didn't know this going into this study, but someone pointed out, I think wisely, that this song was written mainly from the perspective of the Shulamite girl, the, the young princess, if you will. She does most of the talking. She addresses her beloved on a number of occasions, but she also addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. And there's basically three, two main characters. There's, there's Solomon and, and his Shulamite woman, uh, Solomon and the Shulamite, and then you got these, these what's called the daughters of Jerusalem. They show up from time to time. They pop, they're kind of like, I like them to the background singers. They're back here going, ha ha, ha ha, go, you go, you, right? And, and they're here, they're, this is the play that's going on, this relationship, and they're back here kind of watching it all, and they're just doing their little thing. And then she, this is the cool thing, okay? She addresses them from time to time in this song. And so the primary target may have been intended to be these unmarried women, specifically young single virgins, who are old enough to be married and desire to experience marital intimacy, and they're admonished and encouraged to wait to experience that sexual intimacy. And so one commentator said, this is a book about peer pressure at its biblical best, because here's this young newlywed, this young bride who's talking to her peers, if you will, and she comes out of her wedding chamber and comes out of these love scenes and and tells the young ladies, wait for this. It's worth the wait. True love waits. Don't arouse love before it's time. And so I think we know that the book of Proverbs was written primarily to who? Sons, right? My son, my son, my son, my son, my son. I, dad, I get it. No, no, my son, my son. You ever feel like that, dads, with your sons, right? You just got to keep telling, my son, my son, over. And so Proverbs was, was written for sons about avoiding sexual immorality and waiting for the woman who, who fears the Lord. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Hold out for the P31, right? The Proverbs 31 woman. That's the message of Proverbs to the son, to the sons. But the Song of Solomon is for daughters written to help them avoid premarital sex and waiting for a godly husband who will truly love them and not take from them. There's a whole lot of guys, gals that are out there just getting, trying to get what they want from you. They don't truly love you because if they truly love you, they'd never ask to do something with you that you don't want to do that'd be inappropriate. They don't love you, so you hold out for that godly man who will truly love you and serve you and think of you as more, more important than himself. And he'll protect you and he'll guard you and he'll not do anything to violate you. Uncompromised purity now, unquenchable passion later. That's what this gal is telling these other young gals. Uncompromised purity now, un- unquenchable unquenchable passion later. It's worth the wait. Young people, it's worth the wait. 
Don't be foolish. Don't do what the world tells you to do because that's, that's going to end up hurting you, getting you in a whole lot of trouble, messing up your life more than you'll ever realize. It's worth the wait. Be smart. Be wise. So while it may be encouraging, well, basically, I, I could put it this way. It's another way to maybe say it in our vernacular. The, the message of this book, especially for young people, is, is, is um, cool it. <laughs> Relax. Um, don't go there. Okay? Um, cool your jets. Uh, keep, your, keep a safe distance. Okay? Take a cold shower. Okay? That's basically what the message of this book is. And maybe it, to, to those who are married, it's, it's, it's a splash of cold water in the face of, of older lovers, people that have been married for many years who maybe need to rekindle the intimacy in their relationship. And it's not purely physical, but the intimacy that, that is oftentimes displayed physically. Not necessarily, but possibly. And I look around and I see a lot of marriages eroding, but I think there's just as many marriages who are just existing. You're not divorced, but you might as well be because you're just completely disconnected emotionally, mentally, physically, right? You're just sharing a mailbox. You're, you're, you're sharing the same breakfast table, the same toaster. That's about it. It's a sad way to live. And so this is a, this is a wake-up call, right? If, if that describes your marriage, this book is for you. You need this book. Someone said it this way, the song, this song is God's provision to sustain loving marriages and renew loveless ones. It is his provision for increased intimacy that reflects the intimacy or Christ's love for the church, an intimacy that makes the world turn its head to view our marriages and say, so that's the gospel. I see it now, your love, God's love. I get it, your love, I see your love, and I see God's love, I get it. And so without having to allegorize the Song of Solomon, I think it's safe to say that, that the human love depicted here is a clear metaphor of divine love. In other words, human love is simply a reflection of divine love. We love because he, what? First loved us, right? And we know that Scripture abounds in that love shared between a man and a woman within the bonds of marriage was intended by God to serve as an earthly picture of love shared between Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that, right? That, that this, the, the human love, the husband and wife love is to be a picture, a reflection, an illustration of the love that God has for us. And so Aiken says this, while maintaining that the song is about human love, we can maintain that, that's the primary meaning. It's about human love. But human love does not exhaust the greatest song humanity has ever encountered. Indeed, the Bible sings the beauty of the love of God. In other words, the truest, highest, deepest love of all is God's love for us in Christ. Listen, you may have a great marriage. God's blessed you. It's an evidence of God's grace in your life, but I don't care how great your marriage is, it's not as great as your relationship with God. It's not as, it doesn't even come close to how true and rich and meaningful the love is that you share with Christ. Again, E.J. Young, who's a classic commentator on this book, he says, we're not warranted in saying that the book is a type of Christ. That does not appear to be exegetically tenable, but the book does turn one's eyes to Christ. The eyes of faith, as it beholds this picture of exalted human love, will be reminded of the one love that is above all earthly and human affections, even the love of the Son of God for lost humanity. In other words, you, you may... You may not have a great marriage. Maybe you've never been married or maybe you were married and you, you're not married anymore. And you're sitting here as one who's been deeply hurt by what you thought was true love and you're still nursing the wounds of being 
hurt and loved and used and abused and left and you're sitting here heartbroken. And so I would just encourage you, if that's you, that Jesus wants to be your one true love. What an opportunity for you at this point in your life to pursue Christ. And maybe this trial that you're in and, and all this hurt and all this pain that you're experiencing in, in your marriage or because you're no longer married or you're not married and you want to be married and whatever the, the trial is from your perspective and you're sitting there heartbroken, what if that trial is God's mercy in disguise to cause you to pursue Christ because he knows that you wouldn't pursue him any other, for any other reason and so he put this trial in your life and it just happened to deal happened to happened to be about love it happened it was related to your love life why because there's nothing more important right from a human perspective than that and so if God wants to get our attention he'll he'll go after he'll touch that area in our life that is the most precious the the, the most difficult right the most near and dear to our heart, he'll go after that so that we'll go after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book that is such a mystery in some ways and yet very simple in other ways and it's just refreshing to just see your perspective on human love and sexuality and it's not anything you're ashamed of, you're you're um, not embarrassed to talk about your creation, your design, uh, your gift that you thought up. It was your invention, your creation. And, and so we exalt you, we praise you, we thank you for the amazing gift that that love relationship is between a man and a woman, between a husband and wife, and just all the blessings that come with that. Lord, we thank you for those blessings. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for not always living up to these and not enjoying these things as we, we, we should or, or, or violating these things and going off and trying to, uh, and, and distorting this and, and perverting this, Lord, in other ways and, and just being foolish about it. I pray you just bring us back on track, help us to walk in wisdom and that you would use this study, Lord, of the Song of Solomon to help us uh, be wise husbands and wise wives and wise young people as we pursue marriage and, and maybe even those who are older and maybe widowed or, or divorced and, and not remarried yet. Lord, just to walk in wisdom and that, that wherever we're at, whatever station in life we are, that we would, we would pursue Christ and we would be undistracted in our devotion to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.